If the absence of his father caused any trauma or resentment, in the son's mind, it assuredly wasn't a conscious emotion. Due to the absence of any dudgeon and thinking about it now, in the 21st century, the writer finds himself forced to be highly skeptical of the modern and popular psychiatric doctrine on the matter. It would seem unwise to be as dogmatic about the matter as so many seem to be, in light of so many variables that must occur. In this case, as merely one example, the boy had a mother who assumed the father's role and a grandmother who, effectively, became the lad's mother. Perhaps another variable may be mentioned. I'm reasonably certain that the child's age, when the loss of the father occurs, makes a huge difference. However true or false the current beliefs might be, respecting a fatherless child's deprivation, it most certainly wasn't an issue in the case under review. In those pre-war days, as during the war that came, far more important social problems were being faced. Of course, the absence of a father was only one of many supposed deficiencies which beset this lad's early life. Most of these deficiencies have been noted already but, to restate and elucidate the matter, the boy had no siblings, no paternal grandfather, only two uncles-slash-aunts and, until 1939, no cousins. When this paltry family is compared to the very large families then in vogue, this lad and his hard-working mother were seriously impaired, family-wise. The absence of a father, here or there, mattered little. Grandmother Evelie made up for all the missing kin in the lad's life. She was one of the sweetest ladies ever to grace this planet and, like so many in that period, she had strong religious convictions. Notwithstanding this she had, also, the sound common sense to know that living life was much more than just praying and hoping for daily miracles. She was a tireless worker and a firm, but compassionate, disciplinarian. This lady, then, was mainly responsible for the lad's early upbringing and general welfare. The lad, as the reader certainly knows by now, is the writer. With that barely concealed fact now known, and purely for ease of writing and reading, we will change, henceforth, to using the personal, perpendicular pronoun and other, hopefully, apt grammatical terms. My mother was kept more than a little busy earning a living, in the harsh economic climate prevailing in the early 30s. In earning this living, she often encountered overt discrimination and, occasionally, she even was obliged to suffer ostracism. These strong and despicable feelings were very prevalent, at the time, and were directed toward many targets. Amongst these targets were single mothers and their fatherless children. It must be extremely difficult today, to understand the narrow-minded judgmental attitude that existed then. The bigotry, my mother encountered, would fill a book. Fortunately, not all companies and organizations were riddled, with this deplorable petty-minded prejudice. As a result, and largely due to her highly conscientious work ethic, my mother managed to obtain and hold very worthwhile employment. Her loyalty, her integrity and her diligence, ensured she was highly valued by the only two concerns she ever worked for. We can ignore a brief spell she spent at Joe Lyons. Here, my mother was merely filling time and earning some money, while she looked for her first meaningful employment. This she obtained, and quickly, at the General Post Office Telephones Division. We were an undemonstrative family. Personal feelings were rarely discussed and illness, short of it requiring surgery or being a definite and debilitating sickness, wasn't tolerated. Apart from two spells in hospitals, each for very serious surgery, I am truly not aware of a single day my mother took off due to sickness. Mind you, I have known her to go off to work many times, when anyone could clearly see she shouldn't have done so. Demonstrations of any emotion were discreetly discouraged, with the exception of laughter. My mother was not without a good sense of humor, if and when the situation called for it. However, usually, life was seen as a hard and uncompromising struggle. There was little time for levity, or anything else that diverted thought and effort away from the primary task of surviving. This is not to say, and one should not think, that there appeared to be a lack of any affection. It was only, that any affection was expected to be hidden and not displayed openly. In this matter, my mother was a tartar. Whereas my grandmother would weaken, occasionally, and she would allay any fears I harbored that I was an unloved child. Apropos of all this talk of love and emotion, I have to say that no woman was more respected than my mother was, by me. Gratitude and admiration were also felt, and in an equal amount to the deep respect I gladly afforded her. Nevertheless, it was very late in her life, before the term love became immediately synonymous with my feelings for the woman who bore me. However, it is my mother's mother that I see in my mind's eye, during those early years. This woman had raised three children successfully, with virtually no help from a husband. Her grandchild, however fractious, presented her with no problem she couldn't handle, and handle easily. Of more importance, perhaps, she had long ago lost that maternal instinct that produces overprotection of one's offspring, or children under one's care. Importantly, 
she allowed her charge to grow as a young boy should. Knocks and bruises came and mistakes were made but, experience is a great teacher. A teacher, sadly and regretfully, from whom more and more parents prevent their children learning. My grandmother's home, being a multi-story terraced home on Dewhurst Road in the Postal District, then, of West 14, was not unique. Number 5 Dewhurst Road was similar to many thousands of homes built, during the building boom responsible for London's huge growth, during the latter half of the 19th century. This boom was brought about and propelled onward, by the contagious spread and growth of the burgeoning railway. It was the railway, primarily, that afforded the whole Hammersmith-slash-Shepherds Bush area a huge advantage over many other locations within the city. Total ease of access and egress, was assured. One could travel to all points of the compass with ease, largely due to the abundant lines of the London Underground. To these underground routes were added, two main, east-slash-west, roads, as well as a main road that ran north-slash-south. These road and rail routes combined, made the area one of the most highly sought-after places in the capital in which to live. Virtually all the homes, built during the aforementioned boom, were leasehold, initially. These leaseholds, customarily of 99 years, were nearly all discharged during the last quarter of the 20th century. Many of these ex-leasehold homes, in many of the areas, required costly repairs, desperately. Fortunately the upsurge in property values, resultant of the discharged leaseholds, brought professional people to the more accessible areas. This was especially true of the Hammersmith-slash-Shepherds Bush area. These newcomers were able to paint, repair, remodel, and even build additions to, the many old and very rundown properties that were all too common. This, of course, altered the general appearance of the whole area, and, largely, for the better. Still true is the fact that, today in the 21st century, the area is still as popular as ever it was. Maybe, even more so. The house at 5, Dewhurst Road comprised nine rooms, a bathroom, two indoor toilets and a scullery. Of the main rooms only three rooms, a toilet and the scullery were used by the family, exclusively. When it was time for me to have my own bedroom, a large top-floor room was divided and a long narrow room was constructed for me to sleep in. Little, apart from laying on the bed, was possible. It was a very narrow room. The remaining six rooms were let to a succession of lodgers. Although many professions and occupations were represented, amongst the many lodgers over the years, most of the lodgers were hard-working manual laborers. Grandmother Evely labored long to provide a clean, decent home for her six lodgers and, until long after the war started. She even provided a cooked breakfast, for those requesting it. Needless to add, she was up by 5 a.m. most days. Because of the possible presence of the paying guests, I was not allowed a free reign within the home. As a consequence the small gardens, at the front and rear, became my world during the first three years of my life. The rear garden could not have been more than about 60 feet long and about 20 feet wide. Like most English gardens of the time, it was kept immaculately. At the end was a small manicured lawn. When practicable, I became responsible for this lawn, using a push and pull reel mower. Sometime during 1940, the lawn was dug up and an Anderson shelter installed. After the war and with the shelter removed, the lawn was never the same. Filling the remainder of the small garden, were neat and colorful flower beds. Access to the flower beds was gained, by using the narrow concrete paths which interspersed the garden. Later on, I became most interested in gardening and I took on some of the responsibility for the gardening when I could. However, while I was too young, my uncle Charles did what was necessary. I clearly remember a trellis, which Charles constructed, with climbing roses and, in one corner, an ugly castor oil plant. This wretched castor oil plant survived fire, explosions, and the building of the shelter alongside it. With so much being demolished, particularly during the many air raids, it is remarkable that this plant survived and actually flourished. The front garden was too small for anything and was used as the regular resting place for the dustbins. There was an unruly privet hedge which I had the responsibility to cut back, every so often, when I reached the age of about five or six years of age. The hedge grew behind a sturdy brick wall. This wall, which was about two feet in height, was adorned by a wrought iron railing. This railing was repeated, although considerably higher, along the side of the pathway to the front door. This divided the two front entrances of number three, and number five, Dewhurst Road. Then, finishing off the pleasant appearance of the entire front garden, there was a wrought iron gate of some solidity and strength. We will return now, for the moment, to the rear garden. I remember, with pleasure, some phrenic apple pip planting throughout the small plot. Apples were usually available, they were cheap and I liked apples. This resulted, after some basic botany had been absorbed, 
and dozens of small apple trees sprouting up all over the rear garden. I couldn't fail to notice that these trees, while still small, kept disappearing without trace, most mysteriously. Diplomacy achieved a moratorium, upon the understanding that only three saplings would be permitted. These three trees survived, for some years. In fact, they survived until serious navigational difficulties were encountered when walking in the small garden. Finally, only one remained. This tree was grafted and, thereafter, it produced very edible fruit. At the time of my grandmother's death and subsequent sale of her old home, some thirty years later, this sturdy tree was still surviving and bearing fruit. I suspect that, having no close emotional ties to the tree, the new occupants quickly disposed of the result of so much love and labor. I have already alluded to the fact that my mother was absent from my memory, during these early years. Notwithstanding, I do recall a number of the lodgers. These lodgers were to be a significant part, of my early life. This was rarely on a personal basis, it must be understood. Some lodgers were passed, either on the stairs or in the hallway, but all were to be seen paying their weekly rent. Most of them paid at the kitchen door but, if time permitted, some long-time lodgers would be invited into the kitchen for a cup of tea. In addition, to meeting them or seeing them, I would hear about them in conversations, the good and the bad of them. Mostly they were decent people and, except for one lone and long-time lady lodger, all men. This lady was a Miss Green, who led a sad and lonely life. In the main, the lodgers were honest hard-working fellows from Ireland who worked for one or other of the large construction companies which built roads, buildings, and bridges in the area. Sadly, although my grandmother was nobody's fool, she got taken a few times. Far too often in my naive view and, as a result, I grew up to be very cynical and untrusting of my fellow man. I feel justified in my views, to this day. Surely it must be considered despicable, to cheat an elderly, kind, motherly, and so trusting a woman, who is only too glad to act as a temporary mother-slash-wife-slash-housekeeper to her paying guests? One lodger, in particular, is remembered with clarity and affection. He arrived in the early thirties and died, in the only room he ever occupied, in the middle fifties. I knew him, only, as Mr. Hindmarsh. He hailed from Sunderland and had an accent as thick as molasses. He was a kindly, cheerful, softly spoken, and generous man. I well recall him taking me to view the silver jubilee procession of King George V. I remember we stood, with many thousand others, on Hammersmith Road. As the large procession neared, Mr. Hindmarsh hoisted me up on his shoulders to afford me a good view. I must have appeared an insignificant weight to the man because, in an age before machinery became universally used to ease hard manual labor, he spent his whole working day unloading sacks of flour from lorries. After unloading these heavy 112-pound sacks, he was expected to carry them varying distances and stack them in a huge warehouse. These stacks were much higher than a man and it required a ladder to reach the top. The work was arduous and unvaried. At the time, factory management practices often included slave driving methods. Even so, Joe Lyon's premises in Brook Green must have been among the very worst. There is no doubt the insatiable demand for flour to cook Joe Lyon's plenteous products, allied to the company's non-existent work ethics, considerably hastened the death of this decent man. As it might be reasoned, he died of serious heart problems in his late forties. My grandmother and I both missed him. In an economy that rode on the backs of men and horses, lions were infamous. However, work was scarce and one did what one had to, to earn a living. There was, of course, no national insurance or welfare state in those days. Mr. Hindmarsh died three decades before the place of his drudgery, and the drudgery of numerous other poor souls, was demolished by wreckers' balls. Only the countless rats, with which the place was always swarming, were saddened by the overdue demolition of the place known as Cabby Hall. The back garden of five Dewhurst Road has been described. Described with the notable exception of mentioning the sturdy, six-feet-high brick walls, which bordered it on all sides, except that side containing the house. As a consequence of this wall, it was the tiny front garden that became my window to the outside world. What an outside world was there to be seen. The garden itself was insignificant, as has been mentioned, and the unruly privet hedge completely blocked any view from behind it. Any view, that is, except the marvelous view obtained by standing upon the sturdy wrought iron gate. This gate stood at the end of a tiled pathway which led to the raised front porch and the front door. I recall the front porch was scrubbed and polished every day, safe Sunday, with special red paste polish. If memory serves me, the polish was named Cardinal and it was very much in demand, immediately before the step up to the porch, was a circular iron plate. This plate covered the delivery hole to the ubiquitous coal cellar. At the time of which we speak, coal was used in virtually every building. 
fireplaces were still commonly built in the bedrooms of new homes, as well as in the main living areas. Steam, from coal-fired boilers, ran the factories, generating plants, and virtually all else, including the multitudinous steam engines. Offices of every description were heated by coal fires, as was a plethora of other buildings of the age. The smoke haze, hanging over cities and towns, had to be seen to be believed. In the 30s, none cared. Coal gas provided light, both indoors and on the streets. The same coal gas was beginning to be used to fuel gas fires, which were becoming popular, but slowly. However one should be aware that electricity, as a source of light and heat, was in its infancy. Coal gas was to remain the preferred choice for cooking, for many decades to come, and gas fires were to remain serious competitors to electric fires for the same length of time. But, let's get back to coal. Instead of worrying over the harmful effects of the product, every energy was directed toward improving the immense organization that was in place to transport the black gold to where it was required. Wherever possible, seagoing ships transported coal to the larger waterside premises like power stations and vast manufacturing plants. Canal barges, too, were utilized. However the bulk of the coal, being mined in the United Kingdom, was transported about the country by trains. At the time, the vast majority of railway stations had yards to which coal-filled railway wagons could gain easy access. The local coal merchants had stockpiles of coal, which they had purchased, occupying purpose-built storage areas within the local railway station yard. It was from these large stockpiles, that the coal deliverymen filled their sacks and loaded their horse-drawn wagons. These deliverymen were a very common sight, as they traveled the streets surrounding, and neighboring, the local railway stations. One of my first responsibilities was, to ensure that the coalmen didn't short measure my family. In truth, it was not an awesome task. The job merely entailed counting the coal sacks left, by the coal hole, by the coalman after he had tipped the sackful down the hole. It was a universal practice, to leave the empty sacks by the coal hole until the bill had been settled, of course, this gave an accurate count, of the number of hundred weights of coal which had been delivered, or did it? It did cross my mind that there appeared no check on the actual weight of the full sacks. I do recall the coalman always had a sturdy set of scales, on his cart. However, it seemed to me that it would require a special sort of person, to ask for a sack to be weighed. In my naive and childish way I found the size and obvious strength, of all the men who delivered our coal, intimidating. But, returning to my awesome responsibility of counting sacks, I do not recall receiving any complaints. Accordingly, ever since, I have basked in the knowledge that I carried out the onerous task reasonably satisfactorily. Let us return to the wrought iron garden gate, my window on the world. This gate, which looms large in my childhood memory, was very sturdy and had a magnificent return spring affixed. But, before proceeding with this particular point, I beg a favor and ask that I be permitted to return to this particular gate shortly. At this juncture, with the reader's permission, I would like to write a short discourse on wrought iron work, generally. Of primary importance, it was manufactured in the United Kingdom and was readily available. Builders and architects of the vast numbers of homes, built at the time West London was being developed, took advantage of the insignificant cost of this wrought ironwork to decorate their buildings. Fences, gates, porches, these things and many more were found adorning business buildings and homes alike. The vast areas of the London parks, royal and otherwise, were all bordered by high, wrought iron fences, railings, and extremely impressive gates. Even the roads within these parks had low, and foot-high wrought iron fences lining the edges. Wrought iron was very popular as adornment and, most agreed, it was aesthetically pleasing. This discourse was undertaken as background to the fact that, during World War II, the government removed all this wrought iron work. Homes, offices, parks, and official buildings, etc., all lost their attractive, ornamental embellishments. It was bad enough, that the adorning features were removed. However, safety and security were also compromised, in this badly considered campaign to recycle old metals, and make it into weaponry. Even more ludicrous is the fact, the wrought iron was found to be incapable of being used to make any form of war material. In its efficacy, the wrought iron scheme was similar to the abortive scheme to build aeroplanes with recycled aluminium. In both cases the plans were abandoned and many thousands of tons of metal were left, in huge piles, to rot. As with so many other governmental schemes and swindles, inflicted upon the public under the guise of helping the war effort, no compensation was ever tendered to the householders and other owners of the tons of metal seized. The great London parks, large and small, replaced their railings and gates, with tax money. It is strongly felt that the citizens of the United Kingdom could ill afford to lose such an abundant, artistic, and pleasing display of wrought ironwork. 
had the recycling schemes been found useful, well that would be one thing, but. As I have said, the wrought iron gate of number 5 Dewhurst was my window onto the large and exciting world outside the boundaries of my home. What a wonderful world was presented to me, as I swung back and forth standing on the gate, before it was purloined. They were more simple times, than those that were destined to follow them in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. Pleasures came cheaply and without the necessity of great cost. I was quite content, to ride the gate and watch the world pass by. A world full of bustle, hustle, noise and smells, mostly created by people and horses. Vehicular traffic was slowly gaining prominence on the streets but, most of the newfangled vehicles were found to be owned by large organizations such as public transportation. Very few smaller businesses had motor vehicles and there were even fewer privately owned motor cars. In the early 30s, horses moved most of the goods and merchandise, while public transport moved most of the people. However, for many, walking was still the preferred means of traveling, locally. It might be of interest, at this juncture, to make an attempt to describe the London of the time. That is the London of the early 30s, and, largely, up until the advent of World War II in September 1939. This first-hand account, of the general environment and common sights, undoubtedly will be incomplete. Remembrance sometimes gets harder, when one's age increases. However, an effort will be made, to search my memory and to mention as many examples as can be recalled. This might be found to give some understanding, of my character and my beliefs. Also, perhaps, to understanding or explaining my personality traits as well as the reason for me leading the life I've led and, possibly, for me being the person I am. It is said, that we are what we eat. I would respectfully suggest we are, also, the product of what we see and experience, particularly, but not exclusively, as children. Dominating London, prior to the late 50s, was an almost constant foul, smoke-filled atmosphere. It is a mistake to think, as some have, that this execrable atmosphere existed only in the winter months. Certainly matters were exacerbated, on cold, damp days. Nevertheless the problem, while not as acute, existed on clear sunny days too. Only in very windy conditions, was the matter alleviated, somewhat. However, with so much coal being burned 365 days a year, the citizens breathed putrid air every day. Not only were private citizens burning coal for heat, but shops, stores, offices and public institutions, not to mention industry, all burned coal extensively. Some, of course, was burnt to provide direct heat. Even more was burnt, to provide the steam to heat both large and small premises and run the countless factories. Adding to the huge problem was the railway. The trains, of the day, were predominantly powered by steam locomotives. Ignoring the consequential smoke generated by moving locomotives, as they entered and left London, there were about 10 large locomotive depots in the greater London area. All these depots had dozens of locomotives awaiting duty, each one steamed up and smoking. The air, above these depots in particular, had to be seen to be believed. The obnoxious blanket of air over London, now only seen in paintings and photographs, was ignored by officialdom. Not only was it ignored, this adulterated atmosphere was allowed to exist and increase without any attempt, whatsoever, to check or reduce it. That is, up until the killer smog of 1952. This monstrous combination of fog and smoke killed more than 4,000 people, while it lasted. Another 8,000 people died, as a direct result of it, in the months that followed. This infamous smog lasted, from the 5th to the 9th of December 1952. While it lasted, London was in perpetual darkness and largely at a standstill. It is pertinent to remember that the 1952 smog was similar, to so many smogs that had preceded it. Only in length of duration, was it different from its predecessors. All these dense smogs were caused by certain, but fairly frequent, atmospheric conditions. These conditions were known about before the 1952 debacle, but nothing was done. However, because of the enormity of this occurrence, the government was finally forced to legislate an end to, both, the burning of dirty coal and the generating of black smoke. Even so, until the various Clean Air Acts came into force and slowly took effect, the atmosphere over London continued to be abominable. Indeed, it had been worsening, for more than 50 years. A heavy haze of smoke, containing sulfur and many other lethal pollutants, being visible most days of the year. It was very rarely absent. The only variation, in this habitual haze, was in the height and density. The smoke and dirt got into, and onto, everything. Curtains and soft furnishings, in the homes and behind closed doors, became covered in the filth within days of being washed. We will come more fully to the killer smog of 1952, later, when we write of personal experiences. For now we must just accept, 
that horrendous conditions prevailed in London until the 1960s. It should also be noted that, for much of the half-century the pollution existed, the general public was largely ignorant of the harmful, indeed potentially fatal, nature of the air they breathed. It must be added that other large cities in the United Kingdom suffered similar pollution. Having read the preceding paragraphs, the following will come as no great surprise to the reader. Among the most important tradesmen, were the many chimney sweeps. Young boys no longer climbed up the chimneys to clean them, as Dickens had described, but sweeps were everywhere to be seen. Some used horse-drawn carts, but most pushed their equipment in hand carts of various shapes and sizes. Brushes of various sizes were pushed up the chimney by stout, expandable canes. Much as had been done, for decades beforehand, and for decades to follow. The more costly sweeps did their best, to cover the customer's furniture and fittings. Many, however, left this chore to their customers. I recall the ridiculous pleasure children obtained, upon seeing a brush appear from the top of a chimney. This, alone, might demonstrate the serious lack of amusements for children, not that this was seen, at the time, as a problem. There was no universal radio or TV, of course. Not properly termed an amusement, chimneys provided yet another event of note. If the emission of large amounts of black smoke was seen, coming from a chimney, it always encouraged a large number of people to gather, stand, and gawp. The smoke, itself, was not the attraction. Often it would be followed by flames and, then, the appearance of the fire brigade. No child could claim the day to have been wasted, if one had seen the fire truck and its crew. Motor vehicles, the cause of so much pollution today, were not anything like as plentiful as they would be by the end of World War II in 1945. In the early 30s motor vehicles were probably outnumbered, on the city streets, by horse-drawn carriages, carts, vans, drays and wagons. Certainly, privately owned motor vehicles were far from plentiful. At this time, it was common for many things including fruit, vegetables, eggs, milk, and other dairy products, bread and cakes, coal and coke, to be traded on the streets and carried in horse-drawn conveyances. While it is true that some commodities, notably dairy products, fuel and bread, were often delivered by a pre-arranged agreement, it was usually possible to purchase any of the listed commodities from a traveling vendor at the curbside. In this matter, competition was rife. The modern practice, of allocating certain areas to certain tradesmen, was not in vogue, generally. The age-old precepts, involving supply and demand, were most evident and service was the key to business success. The huge dust carts of the day, which picked up all the unwanted garbage, were hauled by a team of large shire horses. What a magnificent sight they were. Happily, the ubiquitous horses were a source of pocket money, for the small lads of the time. Carrying a bucket and small shovel, these lads followed behind any horse-drawn vehicle until the horse provided nature's finest manure. A bucket full of this largesse, would gain the lad a few pence. Roses, in particular, thrived on the horse manure. With roses being so popular, most gardeners were only too pleased to pay for the contents of the small lad's buckets. It should be added that competition, for the horse droppings, was sometimes fierce. Strength and or speed were useful attributes, for a horse follower. Fists sometimes flew, but gardens flourished. After attending the local shops, to purchase the accepted staples of life, virtually all of one's purchases could slash would be delivered. The telephone was by no means a universal item. In fact, relatively few homeowners possessed one at the time. Indeed, many small businesses also did without this newfangled contraption. However, if one ordered goods, by telephone, they too would be delivered, provided the shopkeeper knew the person ordering. To satisfy this considerable demand for delivery, the streets were often crowded, outside of school hours, with delivery boys on bicycles. Often, the bicycles were custom-built, to suit the commodity being transported. Shopping was, in all instances, always cash and carry. Credit was almost unheard of, save for dairy products and, sometimes, bread. If these were delivered regularly and by prior arrangement, it was common for the deliveryman to collect his money on the Saturday morning. Also, a very regular sight was the smartly-dressed telegraph boy. These lads rode red bicycles and wore their distinctive uniforms with pride. They were part of the giant government-funded monopoly, known as the General Post Office. The telegraph boys were responsible, for delivering telegrams which had been received at the local telegraph office. The lads were also charged, with taking down any reply that the recipient of a telegram wished to send. These, they would return to their office, for onward transmission. They had pouches into which they stuffed their telegrams. These pouches were most impressive and made from thick, highly polished black leather. A black leather strap, crossing their chest and back, 
completed the smart and distinctive livery of these multitudinous lads. Being a telegraph boy was a well-paid and a prestigious job. Most of the lads, so employed, knew it and they behaved accordingly. Being connected by telephone to the entire world, telegraph offices were important places throughout the country. Indeed, they were listed in the various gazetteers, alongside other such important things as railway stations and post offices. In truth most telegraph offices were situated in, or, in the same building as, post offices, for obvious reasons. The contents of telegrams were considered to be ominous, generally speaking. This was certainly true, of the less educated. Even with their ready availability, a telegram was the last thing many people thought of sending. A lot of this antipathy was occasioned, of course, by the actual cost of sending one. It is likely, that another reason lay behind the reluctance of many to use the telegraph service. It could have been that poor education meant that many people were inept, at composing a telegram to advantage. Excessive verbiage made the cost, of sending one, far greater than might have been necessary. Nevertheless, although the cost of a telegram was thought excessive, there was sufficient demand for this service to employ thousands of telegraph boys across the country. These lads were a very common sight on the streets, in spite of the cost. Many businesses, along with those people without financial restraints, used the service freely. The final acceptance of the telephone, by the general public, effectively finished this useful service, and the lads who were an essential part of it. However, this didn't occur until well after World War II. It might be pertinent to mention that, during the war, the telegraph was the war office's means of communicating with the next of kin of dead or injured servicemen. Consequently, in addition to their usual deliveries of telegrams, the telegraph boys became the constant bearers of sad-slash-bad news to bereaved parents and or wives. It must have been a thankless task, to deliver the distinctive yellow envelope containing a telegram, during the hostilities. Before continuing with the common sights on the streets of London in the early 30s, let me speak of butchers' shops. I remember them, with some awe. I recall that there was always an abundance of marble slabs, of various sizes, and these made up much of the whole display facilities. The copious amounts of chops, steak, cut joints of meat and all types of offal, were set out on these slabs, often on metal trays, I remember. Some were under glass, under the front counter, usually. Most, though, were in the open and attracting flies. Much of the merchandise was displayed in the front window. The back wall, of the shop, was fitted with strong steel rails and an assortment of steel hooks. These rails were invariably crammed, with the sorry half-carcasses of cattle, pigs and sheep. Some rail space, and nearly all the hooks, was put to displaying a few types of, still-feathered, birds. Sausages, too, were in abundance and hung in long strings from the hooks. I recall the abundance of turkeys, chicken, ducks and geese, which seemed to overflow the butcher's shops just before Christmas. One other memory remains, a distasteful memory at that. I found it difficult to accept the casual manner, in which butchers and customers often pointed out a section of an animal's carcass to be severed to form the anticipated meal. This troubled me, as a child. For better or worse I outgrew this slight antipathy. I reached the point where, much later in life, I was able to eat pigs and cattle I had raised. But, as a child, it bothered me. Nevertheless, it doesn't do to dwell on the matter, I feel. From my vantage point aboard my gate I would also see, as they traveled up and down the street and mostly on foot, knife and scissor grinders, muffin sellers, totters, rag and bone merchants, road sweepers, lamplighters, a host of door-to-door salesmen, insurance men, window cleaners, chimney sweeps and, let us not forget, the ice cream salesman on his three-wheeled bicycle. In addition to these tradesmen, it would be common to see, a policeman, a postman and, of course, the gas and electric meter readers. Some of these tradespeople pushed carts, some rode bicycles, but they all traveled on foot. It might be helpful if I describe, more fully, some of the work done by these people. Many are no longer found, and others have changed beyond all recognition. Of course some supply the same need as they did then but, today, almost certainly most ride in vehicles. The ubiquitous road sweeper, for instance, pushed a small cart between his frequent stops to brush and shovel. The purpose-built cart had suitable places to store the man's shovel and brooms, while he was moving it along the street. Into this cart, he placed all the rubbish he had swept up from the curbs and roadways. Britain has never been the cleanest place in the world but, these men did a more thorough job, of cleaning the streets, than the huge mechanical monsters which replaced them. The lamplighters were necessary, until electricity superseded the coal gas that lit the huge number of street lights. A bicycle was often used to move from one lamppost to the next. A long pole, with a hooked end, was used to activate the manual control valve which activated the flame.
I believe a form of pilot light existed, much as in gas-fired appliances today, but I am not at all certain of this. It was a responsible job. Men, trading as sharpeners of knives and scissors, all pushed a small handcart. This cart enabled the transportation, of a pedal-driven sharpening wheel. It was, of course, against this will that the dull instruments were honed, usually, extremely satisfactorily. Other tools and implements were also honed. The most common of these was, in all likelihood, the many garden shears which trimmed grass and hedges. The totters occasionally drove a horse and cart, from which they carried on their business. Most however, in my area at least, pushed a large barrow onto which they piled the items collected. Anything, with the slightest known value, was bought, and for a pittance. Rags, bones, old metal pans and household wares, old lead piping, dilapidated bicycles, all and more were collected for a few pence. Some totters gave children a goldfish in a bowl, for sufficient items. This certainly encouraged children to purloin what they perceived, erroneously, to be junk. The raucous, and almost unintelligible, call any old rags, bottles, or bones, was shouted, regularly, on the streets of the city. The insurance men sold insurance and collected weekly-slash-monthly premiums from countless homes. Invariably the men were particularly well-dressed and all, without exception, wore a hat. Indeed, most people wore hats at that time. Most insurance men walked, from house to house, but some did use a bicycle. The policies they peddled were very popular, with the masses. The trouble was that, by the time the policies matured, the value of the sum assured had dwindled, considerably. When I was about 20, I recall quite vividly my grand having a policy mature. She and my mother had scrimped and saved, to pay the premiums, when I was a young lad. I forget the details but, the sum they received was minuscule. Certainly it was far from being worth the privations they endured. Privations made worse by the financial struggle, to find the weekly premium, during the policy's early years. Muffin sellers carried large baker's trays, from which they dispensed their wares. Adding to the general melee, which existed on the streets of London at the time, were the horse-drawn dairy floats and the greengrocers and fruiterers' horse-drawn carts. Although, perhaps primarily, delivering previously ordered merchandise, all these tradesmen were available for trading on the spot. Similar to the well-known ice cream vendors, it was possible to employ a stop-me-and-buy-one. Approach to the matter. There were also the cobbler's pushcarts, on which they carried the essential lasts and their leather supplies. Along with these essential supplies, came the shoemaker's heavy-duty pedal-operated sewing machine. While working, the cobbler would often use his cart, as a workbench. Window cleaners, too, often used a small handcart but, just as frequently, they walked or cycled their routes carrying their bucket, chamois leather cloths and their ladder. Another common sight, although confined to the main streets and the very busy areas, were the sandwich board men. These, usually rather shabby, fellows would walk a prescribed route displaying boards. Advertising, of some sort, would be displayed on the boards and this would be shown to the front of the men and to their rear. This visibility being achieved, because of the boards being hinged and supported upon the man's shoulders. Many of the smaller traders and, particularly, the many forms of entertainment purveyors dash from sporting events to those people managing theaters, music halls and the new cinema palaces, all found such advertising most useful. Although horses still predominated, as vehicle propulsion, the removers and storage industry was beginning to invest in motor vehicles. The removal business was, relatively, huge. Not only were people moving home, albeit short distances, in the main, but, people always have reason to move some item or items that are inconvenient to carry by hand. In the age before the private motor car, someone had to be hired, to do the job of moving anything from a trunk full of clothes to a house full of furniture. Both large and small businesses, in the moving field, prospered mightily. The railways, too, had a large number of vehicles on the roads and, although they would soon be largely mechanized, most were horse-drawn when I was a lad. The railways delivered thousands, of rail-borne packages a month. Beside being normal carriers, the rail companies also carried out the very profitable business of collecting holiday-makers' luggage and, after the necessary rail journey, delivering the luggage to the owner's hotel or boarding house. Predictably, after the holiday, the railways reversed the procedure. Few people of any means, whatsoever, could resist the temptation of traveling free from the impediment of luggage. The advent of private motoring put an effective end, to this most useful and highly desired service conducted by the railway companies. Motor buses and trams were quite plentiful, on the Shepherd's Bush Road, barely 20 yards from the vantage point of my sturdy, wrought iron gate. The double-decker trams were especially liked, as they clanged, rattled and thundered along their tracks. 
Many of the buses were open-topped and even the driver was far from being entirely out of the weather. Most of the motor vehicles, but especially the larger variety, were extremely noisy I recall. Quite frequently a huge steam roller, every small lad's delight, would rumble past. These monsters were ubiquitous and were always associated with road works and street repairs. The steam roller was usually the only piece of mechanical equipment used in conjunction with, seemingly omnipresent, roadworks. Virtually all the digging, trenching and refilling, was done manually, mostly with pick and shovel. These leviathanic steam rollers must not be confused, with the modern, smaller, quieter, and motor-driven apology for a steam roller that abound today. Although these modern Shem steam rollers may be efficient, they can't hold a candle to the real thing. The real thing was a noisy, steam-powered monster that, once, awed schoolboys such as me. Indeed, it was no state secret that us lads delighted in the huge, the powerful, and the noisy, dash preferably combined. Another feature, of the 1930s street scene, was, the then universal, art of whistling. It was a rare delivery boy who hadn't perfected the art. Some were most tuneful and adept. Popular tunes of the day, popularized by the music halls mostly, could be heard emanating from the lips of workmen as well as the delivery lads. Bus and tram conductors too, then at the van of entertainment and cheerfulness, whistled tunefully. Finally, we had the young raw schoolboy. Having not perfected the art, these lads' discords cluttered up the airwaves. What they lacked in tunefulness, they more than compensated for in raucousness. Whistling on the streets, barely outlasted the end of World War II and the widespread practice was dead, by the early 50s. However it might be of some interest to know that entertainers could earn a living, by expertly whistling while treading the boards of the numerous music halls. In today's sophisticated entertainment environment, it is likely very hard to imagine this fact. Sadly, tuneful whistling appears a lost art, these days. Finally I think I should make mention of various other, but lesser, people I remember vying for attention on the streets of London. Pavement artists abounded on the heavily traveled pavements. Chalk was mostly the medium of choice and the level of the art varied, between excellent and merely passable. These artists would start early in the morning, so that their work was viewable by the morning rush hour pedestrians. Rain, obviously, was the bane of these artists' life. Then, there were the numerous buskers. These people performed a large number of feats and or entertainments. Varying greatly, from balancing acts and conjuring acts to straightforward singing or playing a musical instrument, the busker's aim was to entertain, and receive cash from the passers-by. Among the many musicians, playing on the city streets, were those who made their living playing a barrel organ. The barrel organ was a portable, and very loud, pipe organ. This instrument was played, by the turning of a sizable handle. This handle turned a peg-studded cylinder which, by controlled the opening and closing of the organ valves, controlled the various sounds. Cylinders were easily changeable and each one produced a rendition of a popular tune of the time. In point of fact, the barrel organ was a louder, larger version of the popular player piano. Many barrel organ operators also had a monkey to assist them and, it was hoped, amuse the children. The monkey, which always carried a tin collecting mug, was chained to the organ but was able to travel some six feet from the instrument. In this manner, the animal was able to collect any money that was proffered by the passers-by. Of course, not everything I have described was seen from my perch on the gate. However all could have been seen, at times, within a short distance. Nevertheless, it was rare, for something of interest not to be passing by my vantage point. There were other perks. As when, occasionally, a peach or an apple, or some other fruit, would be given to me by the fruiterer who called upon my grandmother. At the time, I thought it was pure unadulterated kindness. Cynically, perhaps, I now believe that it was more likely a means of ingratiating himself with my guardian. No matter, I enjoyed the treat, hugely. As a youngster, my gran would often take me shopping. The shops of the day were greatly different, from the plethora of self-serve stores that are so common today. Unlike the modern shops and stores, shop assistants were plentiful and, invariably, most knowledgeable and helpful. It was very unusual indeed, to be kept waiting for service. Whatever the type of shop, customers would be expected to wait for service, behind the counter. The small stores had but one counter, whereas the large stores had at least one for each department. Assistants were employed to discuss a customer's wants and to advise them. If necessary, the assistant would fetch the item and show it to the customer. This general principle of shopping was followed, no matter the product or size of the store. There was, however, one major difference with regard to the handling of cash. Cashiers were very often centralized, especially in the larger establishments. Small shops and owner-operated shops might well have a till of some sort but, generally speaking, 
assistants were not expected to make change. The very common practice, of centralizing the cashier, meant sending customers' money, and their bill, to a central location. Quite a few methods of doing this were in vogue. The most common, of these methods, was fascinating for youngsters, particularly. First there was an ingenious contraption, known as a pneumatic tube, which was run by compressed air and made a most impressive hissing sound. This method, of dealing with customers' money, required that actual tubes be installed between the various departmental counters and the cashier. The money, along with the shop assistant's handwritten bill, was placed in a small tubular container. This fitted snugly, in the aforementioned tubes. A pull on a wire saw compressed air shoot the container, to the centrally located desk of the cashier. Here, the bill and the money were checked, audited and approved. The approved bill plus any change due was returned, by the same method to the shop assistant, to be handed to the customer. It was not a lengthy procedure, usually. This system was especially useful for the large and multi-story departmental stores. Because this method was mostly out of my sight, I was not so impressed by it as I was of the second method of dealing with customers' cash. The second main method, employed by stores to get cash etc., to their cashiers, was by a spring-loaded contraption which conveyed wheeled containers along a wire. The required momentum was generated, manually, by means of a large heavy spring. This spring would be operated by the shop assistants initially and, then, by the cashier to facilitate the container's return. The wires were strung, among all the various counters and the cashier's office. This method was most suitable for the single-storied and or medium-sized businesses. Although the wires were often behind a wire mesh for safety, they were often clearly visible as they traveled all over the building. I found watching the canisters most interesting, as they moved at speed along the wires. It was usual, for the small, often family-run, businesses, to have staff who could make change and use the cash register. But, in the event such mechanical aids were not available or in use, it was sometimes a problem to hire staff who could manage the money responsibly. To my knowledge, only one business had legislation regulating the handling of money in its shops. This regulation concerned butchers. All butchers had a separate and usually self-contained area, in which sat the cashier. After a sale, the butcher would shout the amount owed to the cashier. This was done, usually, while the butchers wrapped up the sale. At the cashier, the customer would pay the sum owing and then be given a receipt. This receipt would, of course, be handed to the butcher before the purchase was taken away. It is only supposition but, I think the handling of cash was considered dangerously unhygienic, for a trade that used bare hands to carry and cut the many meat products. Another point of possible interest, to those used to today's hustle and haste of shopping, most shops and virtually all department stores provided chairs. Upon these chairs, customers were able to sit while making their selections. This, apparently lethargic way to shop, was possible due to the fact that individual attention was given to customers. As we have been told already, shop assistants were very plentiful. In particular, they were encouraged to take time over the customer's wants. Remember that articles were always brought to the customer, even in the smallest and humblest of shops. There was no self-service. Under these circumstances, the providing of a chair made perfect sense. If my guardian on the particular shopping trip wasn't using a chair, I recall being plonked down on one. Invariably, I was instructed to stay there, still and silent. Apropos of this last-mentioned distinct recollection of mine, it is germane to appreciate the following. Indubitably, badly behaved children existed, in my younger days. However, and without question, the incidence of bad behavior in public was very low. Discipline, at all levels of society, was fairly strict. In particular the modern pointless practice, of issuing endless idle threats to children, was virtually unknown. It is remembered that when I was young, and up to well after the end of World War II, lifts, or elevators as our American cousins deigned to call them, were manned by courteous and helpful staff. As each floor was reached, the lift operator would announce the floor level and the various items, or facilities, available on it. Self-operated lifts would not appear, in general use, until about the 1950s, and, then, only slowly. Another aspect, of daily life in the 30s, involved the paying of bills. Credit was largely unheard of, for all except the very rich and or well-known celebrities. Normal people, such as us, were expected to pay upon receipt of the goods or services. The milkman or the baker, who delivered these items to your door by prior arrangement, usually allowed a weekly settlement of the bill. Saturdays were the customary payment days. Gas and electricity meters were much in vogue, at the time, and a supply of these services often depended upon coins being deposited in these universal contraptions. 
Officials from these two utility companies would call regularly, at least every month, to collect the cash so deposited in the meters. As mentioned, the insurance man called to collect the weekly or monthly premiums. Often, this would be an amount less than a shilling, often, merely sixpence. In the early 30s, a shilling was a sizable sum. It consisted of 12 pennies and a penny consisted of two halfpennies or four farthings. Many items cost no more than a farthing, when I was a small lad. A halfpenny or, particularly, a full penny represented quite a huge sum, especially to children. My pocket money, which I had to earn, was a penny, until I was about nine years old. Then, it rose to threepence. I have no idea why tuppence was missed out. Likely, it had more to do with my mother's income than to my worth. About a mile could be traveled on public transport, for a penny, in the early and mid-thirties. The important national newspapers cost a penny. A letter could be mailed, anywhere in the country, for the same sum. One penny purchased a sizable quantity of sweets, an ice cream cone or wafer sandwich, and a one-ounce bar of Nestle's or Cadbury's chocolate. I recall, that one-penny bars of chocolate were often dispensed from the, fairly newly installed, vending machines. These machines were becoming quite plentiful, particularly in places like railway stations. As a young child, and living in Dewhurst Road, I recall the postman called at least three times a day and, in addition, there was a special parcel delivery. A distinctive rat-a-tat-tat, would be wrapped on the door by the door knocker. A door knocker, being an almost universal item, was commonly affixed to all front doors. It must be remembered, that electricity was far from universal at the time. Doorbells were newfangled, and quite rare, instruments. Postal collections, from the very distinctive red pillar boxes, were frequent and made until late in the day. Overnight mail was commonly achieved, over much of the country, and most mail was received within two days of posting. Same-day delivery within a town was usual, if the item was posted in that town before noon. Of course, the mail was mostly personal, in those far-off days. Virtually no junk mail littered the hallway of the home, after the postman had called. There was a marked absence of bills, too. The creditless society had its advantages. It is worth noting that, although the postman called at a home less frequently than he does today, his calling brought much more pleasure. In those days, his calling even brought keen anticipation.